All right, so we're studying 1 Peter chapter 4. And if you had a Bible, flip to it. We're going to finish uh, chapter 4 right now. We've been in 1 Peter for, I don't know, a couple months now. But we're nearing the end. And I want to see, what, what we're going to see here in chapter 4, I think, is essentially expansions on the same themes we've been talking about. Um, John, Peter repeatedly goes back to these same things, but he's giving us new facets of them each time. There's a couple things that I'm excited to make sure that you recognize here. And I'll read chapter 4, verse 12, through the end of it, and then we'll take it apart. And so as I go through it, do this. I'd love you to do this. As I just read through it, anything that kind of makes you cock your head, just make a note of it, right? Um, because I, would always, I will always happily abandon my notes in favor of your questions, right? There's a couple things that I think are worth looking at, but if there's something that you find particularly puzzling or exciting or like that you disagree with, whatever, they, I would always want to bring those things to the fore. So note the stuff that's of interest to you. So 1 Peter 4, 12 says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. It is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Probably, maybe literally everything that's in there, we've already talked about at some point because it's these same themes that keep coming up. A couple things to note, though. I'll try to give you some organization, then we'll kind of go where you want to go. Um, this is a new section. This is, a new, this is like a new page, a new chapter in the letter. It's not literally a new chapter because the chapter breaks in the Bible. Do you know this? The chapter breaks in the Bible are artificial. They're, they're not arbitrary, but they're not part of the original. Um, somebody came along years and years and years later and was like, hey, this would be easy to break this thing up. And sometimes they did a great job. Sometimes they didn't do a great job. I'm going to suggest not a great job right here. How can you tell it's a different section just from within the text? What gives us a clue that we're moving into a new phase of this letter? Do you notice a couple things? Okay, right. Doesn't that sound like a letter? Like, dear, if you got something that's like the middle of it, it's like, dear John, you'd be like, oh, well, hang on. Why did you say that now? It's, it's breaking up. There's a new section that's beginning. There's also a clue that the previous section has ended. The amen, right? And that amen itself is following, it's, a, it's essentially a doxology, right? When he says, to him be the glory and the power forever and ever, amen. Doesn't that just intuitively have to you a sense of like, and close curtain, okay? So we're, we're to, God, to God be the glory, amen, and now we're dear friends, don't be surprised. And so you should just notice in your brain, like, okay, get it. Like, there's a line in here, probably should be a chapter break. But it's not, but that's okay, but there should be, okay? So it's a new section. So what's going on in the new section? And here's what he says. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. And right there, so it's a new chapter, but you're like, well, it's not that new. 
right? Because this is what we've been talking about incessantly for weeks and weeks and weeks. On the one hand, there's suffering that it's going to be hard. The cost of Christianity is going up. There's going to be suffering. And what's the other, what's the other tag that's extraordinarily First Peter-ish in this? Strange, right? So if you go through the, the idea of like, what's weird? For the whole book is about weird. You are weird. Don Steinweg, you freak. He's saying you're, you're, you're an alien. You're a stranger. You're an exile. You're, you're weird, okay? Right? That's not, and that doesn't have anything to do with First Peter. That's just in general just true, right? No, right? So we're strange, right? But he's also going to say, listen, the rest of the world, so we're strange, but he says things like, they think it's strange that you don't plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation. They think that, like, they don't, you don't make any sense to them. Here, he's like, you think this is strange. He says, you think, you, is, how do you, you think something strange is happening to you. But this is, you guys, this is, a nor- he's saying, this is normal Christianity, but so the whole letter is just permeated with this idea of like everybody's like freaked out. Nobody knows what normal is. And Peter's trying to kind of recalibrate for us. Here it is. This is normal Christianity. It's costly. People think that you're weird. Um, there's, the pain comes in ways that you're like, what's the, what's the deal? Like, no, what do you mean what's the deal? This has always been the deal. But then he's going to define the deal in a very specific way. And it's... It's strange. It's weird. Listen to what he says. Here's, the, here's the, the particular facet of oddness. He says in verse 13, and instead of thinking it's strange, do this. Rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Okay, that's the phrase I want to double click on with you for a little bit at least. What does it mean? Let's get a few different ideas on the table. What does it mean to share in the sufferings of Christ. Does anybody have a different translation there? Some might say that you share. Some might say that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Partake. Partake in the sufferings of Christ. Okay, so what does that mean? What, what is the suffering of Christ? Is the passion, right? So whether you're going to say the cross as the centerpiece, or you might say the beatings and the suffering. You might say the rejection and the cross, but it's the, it's the cross. It's the Passion Week. It's the, it's the shape. And so what does it mean to share in the sufferings of Christ? Paul says elsewhere, um, he talks about bearing in his body the wounds of Christ, right? What does it mean to participate, to share, to partake in the suffering of Jesus? Okay, so there's the aspect, so you, you, Catherine says, does it mean to share in the rejection of Christ, for, sh- for sharing Christ with others? Okay, so there's something there, so yes, so there's something here, like he was rejected, we will be rejected, okay, yes, Stuart? Ultimately though, but Christ put himself as the innocent for the payment of all of our sins, so it's sort of like when you, um, well like you talk about the movie The Last um, to end all wars, you know, when the guy... Well, well, don't give it all away. You can't. They haven't all seen it. Okay, so, but they should, should they see it? Should they, they should see it. <laughs> to end all wars. This is like the fourth advocacy for this. This is so good. It's unbelievable. But the point is when you take, when you put yourself or give yourself up for someone else, whether it's just, you know, you go without eating for someone else to have food or you take... You know the penalty for someone else's sin, or or you sacrifice what you would have wanted 
someone else for someone else. I mean, I think that's the essence of it every day. Because if we all get crucified, we're not going to be of any earthly good to his kingdom. Excellent, excellent. Okay, so there's some sense that we're going we're to suffer, be persecuted. There's also some sense that it's particular about the innocent suffer. Like, Jesus is the righteous one, and yet he suffers all these things. There's all this in here. It's excellent. What, 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 keep going here. What does it mean to share in, in the sufferings of Christ? And I'm looking for something that I should have looked up ahead of time, but it only just occurred to me, so bear with me here. Uh, yeah, okay, I'm ready now. Yeah, Tommy? Could it even be just um, him being born? I mean, when did God ever have hunger until he became man um, to hunger? Sure. So Jesus' whole life, compared to the pre-eternity and glory, like, you know, being thirsty was part, you know, normal thirst, suffering, or... You know, having acne is suffering compared to, like, eternal glory and, and whatever. So that's, that's absolutely true. Yep. Um, I was thinking about specifically when we, when we suffer in such a way as we're trying to bring uh, the same purposes as Christ. Yep. Because it then goes to saying um, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Is that not our purpose then to, um, to hasten the day of the yeah. glory? So when we suffer unto the, the same purpose. Yes, excellent. So we're suffering these things for him. But here's this. Let me ask you something. This is a very dangerous theological question. Oh, Kelly Sue, save me from danger. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> I, thought, I thought it had a lot to do with our union with Christ. And therefore, like, when it says in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ, and therefore it's no longer I live, but Christ lives with me, that because we are Christians and we are united with him, when he was crucified, we were crucified with him, only in that our life is hidden in Excellent. He appears, you know, we'll appear with him in glory. And I thought it was kind of more about our position in Christ and our, our union with Christ. Okay, very good. The suffering we experience, although that's true. Excellent. Yeah, so there's that. There's this default underlying sense that if we died with him, we will also live with him. This is Romans 6. We are united to him. His death is our death. His life is our life. And so there is some sense of that, absolutely. But then also these other senses are also true in which we participate in. We, it's not merely that we remember that he suffered, but that, that that has bearing today. Because I'm united with him in his suffering, perhaps I shouldn't be surprised if there's yet more to come, right? Now, here's, a, here's your dangerous theological question. Was there anything lacking in Jesus's suffering? No. No? No? no. Anybody want to come go out on a limb? Is there anything lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, how about this? Go to Colossians 1, 24. And Paul will say this. Now, I rejoice in what was suffered for you and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Okay, what? Future sins. What's that? Future sins? Well, uh, you, well future sins. Unpack that, Billy. He suffered for the sins of us now. Okay, it is true that when Jesus died, 
He was dying to pay for all the sins that had ever been committed. That's, that's accurate. But it is also true that he was dying in payment for all the sins that would come. So it's not, it's, I'm not sure if this is where you're going, Bill, but, but he didn't just die for the sins that had yet to be done or that had already been done and now we've got a new solution. His death looked at everything in the past and looked at everything in the future, right? Okay, so that is true, okay? That Jesus has fully paid for all of our sin. So if you take my question, which was obviously meant to draw you into a trap, so well done, okay, that <laughs> his death was sufficient. It is to tell us die. It is finished. The payment has fully been made. And yet, and yet, if God's eternal purposes are going to be accomplished, there is more suffering to come. That Jesus' work to atone for sin is utter, it is complete, and there's nothing that anyone can or should or must add to that. However, before he comes again, there's going to be a lot more blood spilled. Not in an atoning way, not in a propitiating way, but if this message of the completed work of Christ is going to make it to the edge of the world, then Jim Elliot's going to take a spear to the chest right? And you might suffer too. That There is something lacking, not because his work was insufficient, but because the plan involved not only a crucified person, but a crucified people. And we are continuing in the great work that he did. And to make, to give you a little term that you can drop in conversation if you feel like, you know, being impressive, we are to be a cruciform people. Okay, that means that we take on the shape of of the cross. And over and over and over again, our lives are supposed to look like his life. And if he suffered unjustly, then we shouldn't be surprised. It shouldn't be a shocker that we will suffer unjustly. That if he was the innocent one but was ill-spoken of and maligned, then we should not be surprised if we in our very innocence are ill-spoken of and maligned. And if he who was suffered and was killed and was brutalized, then rose from the dead in triumphant victory, we should not be surprised that one day we too will be vindicated in a victory. And our hope and anticipation of that should shape and inform what we do today. So something is lacking in his suffering. Not that his blood wasn't sufficient to atone for the world. That's clear. That's established. That's done. But his his determination that the whole world would hear about this means that the people who follow the crucified one will take on a cruciform life. And so we share in his suffering by imitating what he's already done to accomplish the total proclamation of it to a world that may not like it the first time or the twelfth time that they hear it. Does that make sense? Okay, yep. I, I think what's lacking is he, he didn't sin. Well, that's right. And he, he died for us. We, we can't die for him. We cannot die for him, but we can lay down our lives in the service of others that they might know of the one who did die for them. And that's what, that is what Paul is going after. That's what Peter's going after. And that, that is the gospel. He does the atoning work. And then our job as the messengers of that is to be willing to take the hit on the way to the whole world hearing. Okay, Jennifer. Funny you mentioned Jim Elliott because I thought of him immediately as you said it. And from what I've read is that they did not fight back at all from the. That's right. And when asked, and eventually they all came to Christ, and when asked, they said that they all said we 
know where we're going when we die, but we can't kill these people because they won't go there. That's right. So we have to die so that they can live. That's right. That's exactly what you're saying. And that, that, that is, the Jim Elliott story is a, is a, is, is a well, in some way, it's a perfect example. There's one problem with the Jim Elliott story, which I'll explain in a second. But it is exactly this. It is, it is them being willing to, we will lay down our lives. Jim Elliott did not believe that his blood was going to atone for the Aka Indians, right? There's no question about that. He didn't think, I'm going to die. I'm, he, he didn't go down there with a savior complex. But he did go down there saying that in order for them to know about the one who is the savior, somebody might have to suffer. And, I'm going to, and I accept those terms, Okay. Jim Elliott is a perfect example of this. But here's the problem with the Jim Elliott thing is that it's so freaking dramatic, right? Like, and you're very, very unlikely to get speared to death, okay? But you're incredibly likely to have lots and lots and lots of much less dramatic opportunities to suffer for somebody else. It, it probably won't make the cover of a magazine. Um, and it might even in some ways be more difficult because a decision of a moment is like a decision of a moment. But deciding 10,000 times to continually suffer rejection at the office has its own special misery to it, right? So let me show you, uh, let me show you a version of this that's not quite so like flamboyant, all right? Go to First Thess. This is the same concept. What does it mean to share in the sufferings of Christ? Tim, uh, what's this guy's name? Paul writes to the Thessalonians. He loved the Thessalonians. He loved them, loved them, loved them. He adored these people. There's incredible warmth and affection in all this communication with the Thessalonians. What's that? Uh, two, we'll pick it up at two, uh, 14. How about that? Yeah. Two, 14. First Thess, two, 14. He says this, for you brothers became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus, you suffered, here's the theme, you suffered from your own countrymen, the same things that those churches suffered from the Jews, who, and listen to this, here's the center claim, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displeased God and are hostile to all men in their efforts to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they heap up their sins to the limit and the wrath of God has come upon them at last. Okay, so Paul is talking about the crucified one who was killed by them. And he's like, you know what? As we go to tell them about, the, about Jesus who died for them, we get lumped in with him. They were not just hostile to him, but they're hostile to us. And they're not just hostile to us. And in fact, this is such a crazy thing. He says they're hostile to all men because they're preventing them from hearing the gospel. You do, when you prevent an evangelist from doing his work, you are showing extreme animus to those that would otherwise potentially hear the gospel and believe. He's saying, so there's just like hostility everywhere. They're trying to keep us. And so what ends up happening is that Paul is separated from the Thessalonians and he sees it as a violence. He says, but brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. I wanted to come to you, but Satan stopped us. So there's this desire for intimacy, connection, relationship. And not just because they want to hang out and go golfing. Well, that's fine. You can go golfing. But because he longs to secure them in Christ. But Satan is preventing it. The people are preventing it. And so he's suffering. He sees this in violent terms. That he is he's un, he's experiencing an injury. He's living a cruciform life. His life is marked by pain because he loves the Thessalonians. And things just go from bad to worse, right? And then he says finally this. Look at this in 3.1. When we could stand it no longer, when the pain of our separation was too great, we finally sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker, to strengthen you, to encourage you. And then here's what ends up happening. And here, we've seen the death language. Now watch the resurrection language, okay? Verse 6. 
But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought us good news about your faith and love. He's told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers, in all of our distress and persecution, this is more the sufferings of Christ, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. And here it is in verse 8. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. And what he's describing is this cruciform pattern that our job is to enter into things. You could just say, well, I don't care cares about the Thessalonians and move away. But because Paul has made a determination that his joy will be contingent upon the flourishing of others in Christ, it's painful. It hurts. Because sometimes they walk away. Sometimes we're prevented. Sometimes they make terrible decisions. He's constantly saying this. I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. 1 Corinthians 11 is a, is a summary of the, all the things that Paul has suffered. In danger from my countrymen. In danger from the Jews. In danger in the country. In danger sea. You know, hungry. To, toil. We go without sleep. He suffers. But the point is that at the end of the suffering, we, we live. That resurrection follows crucifixion. And the cruciform life, the Christian life, is to be one that embraces, hey, you know what? In order for God's purposes to be accomplished, there's going to be some more suffering that takes place. And I accept those terms because I believe that there's going to be a resurrection and God's purposes will be vindicated. This is what he's saying. We share in his sufferings, which is, which is tricky, which is strange, which normal people don't do. And Peter is saying, well, don't be normal then. Be a Christian and embrace the strangeness and the suffering of it. Okay? That all make sense? All right, let's keep going. There's a few more key phrases here. Um, how about this? What does it mean when he says, quote, when his glory is revealed? What's that talking about? What is that? Go ahead, real loud. Return. His return, the return of Christ. What were you going to say, Quig? Is that what you? The return of Christ. When he's, his, the revelation of his glory. At some level, he's always revealing his glory, and he can anytime reveal his glory. But the bullseye of that is our whole lives are lived in anticipation of the return, right? Not when we die and go to heaven and be with him, that's fine. But when he comes back, that is the anchor of our lives. Paul will elsewhere call it the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter, and the whole New Testament is endlessly going to say, this is the anchor of our lives. That everything we do, every dollar we spend, every decision we make is done in light of this because the day is coming. The day is coming. It shapes, our, it shapes the decisions we make about our own personal morality. It shapes the way that we have conversations with our neighbors. It shapes the way that we spend our money. It shapes the way we choose our vocation and conduct our vocation. This is the thing. We are living our lives in light of this anticipation of the, of the glorious return of Jesus. And then he says this. Look at verse 14. He says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, that's an interesting little phrase there. The spirit of God and the spirit of glory rests on you. Anybody know what that is? Because he's not making that up. I wonder if you search your brain. Andy, can you find a, a link to that? Matthew 5. Okay, what is Matthew 5? Okay. Blessed are you who are persecuted for his sake, for his name. Uh, when they insult you, know that they, they insult the 
Yes, so an excellent. So we've seen over and over again that Peter is referring to the Sermon on the Mount. His thing, none, none of these letters by the early church fathers, like by, by, not fathers, fathers are another generation, but by Peter, Paul, John, these guys, they're never making stuff up. They're just double-clicking on something Jesus said. They're expanding on what he said. They're quoting him. They're applying him. It's all very Jesus-y is what they're doing. So this is true. But there's actually another specific phrase that he's going to use. I'm going to give you this. Don't, don't, sweat the, don't sweat the persecution stuff for the moment because that's, that's, that looms so large and has such a Sermon on the Mount flavor. This phrase, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This is more obscure, but it's possible you'll know it. Jason, do you know that, what he's alluding to there? The stoning of Stephen? Uh, I don't, that might be, I don't know what it is. What's the connection there? Because they said when they looked at, they, right before they were beginning to stone Stephen, they said they looked at him and he had the face of an angel. That, you know, God's glory was presenting. Huh, interesting. Okay, so that, they're actually, I'd have to go back and look at that. What's, what's, what's curious about that, Jason, is that the stoning of Stephen is entirely designed to, to remind us of the crucifixion of Jesus. And there's all these weird, very, very conspicuous claims that, that, that Stephen, Stephen's going to say, you know, Father, forgive them if they don't know what they do. Um, I can't remember them all, but there's a whole bunch of stuff that's, that's going on in the Stephen event that is specifically meant to point us to Jesus, which is, here's what my point is. Let me show you this, because this might be too obscure of a question. What, what Peter is quoting uh, is Isaiah 11, okay? Listen to Isaiah 11. Tell me who we're talking about here. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse... And from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Okay, is that, does that phrase meaningful to you? This is, this is a classic Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah. Who's Jesse, first of all? David's father. David's father. So from the line of David is going to come somebody. And he uses this image in, in Isaiah. He lo- Isaiah's got this infatuation with this like vegetarian, not vegetarian, like vegetable. What am I trying to say? Like plant stuff, vegetation, that's the word. Like with... Okay, so over and over again, he's got this theme of a, of, a, of a shoot coming up out of dry ground. That's Isaiah 53. Of a stump in the land that's been cut down. Of a tree that's coming up out of the stump. And in the midst of, he calls him the branch. One of the, one of the messianic metaphors is that Jesus, when, when, the, when the Messiah comes, he's going to be this tree. But he's not just an ordinary tree. He's a tree that grows out of a place of death. He's a tree that comes specifically out of a dead stump. So the thing that looks like it's been decimated from the very center of death is going to come life. See also, Jesus is going to be killed. He's going to rise again. This is part of one of the metaphors he uses. And he says this, a shoot will come up from the stump, the place of death. So life out of death from Jesse, that's David's line. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. And listen to what he says about him. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his ears or decide, sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. And when John, I mean, when Peter says, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you, he is double clicking on this guy, this claim that the spirit of the Lord will rest on who? On Jesus. And what he is doing, and this, this happens, you guys, this happens over and over again, is pictures and prophecies and images that are given specifically about the Messiah, they end up being taken off of the Messiah and applied to those that follow the Messiah. And once again, what Peter is doing is saying, 
You take your cues from Jesus. And if the Spirit of God rested on him, then the Spirit of God will rest on you. If he suffered as an innocent one, then you will suffer as an innocent one. If he was victorious after enormous suffering, you will be victorious after enormous suffering. One more time he's saying, you guys are everything about Jesus. When you look at Jesus, you shouldn't merely see what he was, but you should see the, the pattern to which your life is over time increasingly conforming. That we're being made more and more and more to look like him. And that's true in the things that are really painful and difficult, but it's also true in the things that are really beautiful and glorious. That if the Spirit rested on him, the Spirit will rest on you. That's where he's going. And you guys, here's the thing that's really interesting. At varying times in the history of the church, we did this really well. There are various times right now, various places right now, that we do this really well. But I wouldn't say that it's uniformly been the case that we have chosen to be insulted for Christ and drank the blessing of that. I think it's far more often that we're like, I don't, don't stop. I don't want you to insult me. I don't want you to block me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do all that I can to prevent the suffering. There have been different times when our instinct to protect ourselves wasn't perhaps as strong as it seems to be right now. Or maybe as it seems to be in me, because I don't exclude myself from that. You guys may have ever heard, I don't, and I don't, I, I got to learn how to say this guy's name. There's this famous letter to Dionetus, maybe, D-I-O-G-N-E-T-U-S. It's from 100 A.D. This is early, 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 okay? I want you to listen to the spirit that permeated Christianity. This is how Christians were described very, very, very early. Just listen to this. There's so much goodness in here. Um, I'll skip a little bit of it because it's hard to listen to something being read forever. He says this. Um, and presumably the author of this is not a Christian, but he's describing what he sees in these, in these freaks, in these weirdos around him. He says, For Christians are, the, are distinguished from other men, neither by country nor language, nor the customs which they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor imply, or I'm sorry, nor employ a peculiar form of speech nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. The course of their conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men, nor do they um, proclaim themselves as advocates of any merely human doctrine. Okay? So the first thing he's saying is that they don't all wear pink sheets and hand out flowers at airports. Okay? He's saying they don't all wear turbans. They don't all, there's nothing, there's no like external anything. Like some of them wear shorts, some of them wear suits. Some of them wear, like, there's no, they don't have a dot, they don't, there's no like external thing. So they look, they're not strange. They haven't adopted any strange visible manifestation that would say, oh, Christian, Christian, Christian. They don't do that. Okay? But they're still freaks. Okay? So he keeps going. He says, um, inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as the lot of each of them is determined, and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct. So they just, they just look like a Grecian. They look, they look normal. Like the surfer Christians dress like surfer Christians, you know? And the skater Christians dress like skaters. And the, the businessmen Christians, they wear suits. They just look like everybody else. And yet, and yet, they have this striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet they endure all things as if foreigners. So they take the lowest place. 
That's weird. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. So interesting. They don't believe that they possess everything here, but they're perfectly comfortable being anywhere. They marry, as do everybody else, and they beget beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. It's telling, right? Abortion is a relatively new phenomena, but killing your children is not. Abortion is difficult, so simpler in this time just to give birth to the child and then expose it, leave it out, let it just die of the elements and starvation. But Christians don't do that. They have a common table, meaning they're generous and hospitable and they share the food with others, but not a common bed. Isn't that interesting? How are we doing today? Do we have a common bed, but not a common table? They were different. They're in the flesh, but they don't live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they're citizens of heaven. Listen to this. They, prescri- they obey the prescribed laws. They're an obedient people. They're a submissive people. And at the same time, they surpass the laws by their lives. If they are compelled to walk one mile, they will actually walk two. Now, listen to this. This is really where it gets very Petrine here. Petrine. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They lack in all things, yet abound in all. They are dishonored, yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and they do, and they repay the insult with honor. They do good and yet are punished as evildoers. And when punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed as foreigners. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. And yet, those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. That's First Peter four. What this guy, and this is this letter is early, 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 early. And what they're saying is that these guys are living out First Peter four. They've just fully embraced it. This is the deal. Is that challenging? Man, cruciform life is a difficult life. To participate in the sufferings of Christ, if I could avoid it, I think I would. And yet, the invitation is to go low, even lower, that we might be exalted even higher. Stuart? Peter saying this is maybe a bit tangential, but um, when you were talking to reading that letter, one of the I read earlier this year or late last year, the robe. Oh yeah. Lloyd C. Douglas. Yeah. And um, it was made into a movie, but I'd say read the book. Yeah. Um, and it's written like in the fifties or something, mm-hmm. but again, it, it really goes back to what that early church looked like. Yeah. Because it picks up right at the crucifixion of Jesus and then goes forward. <coughs> into how the church read and how they lived and how they lived differently. And ultimately, I don't want to spoil the book, but kind of like uh, to end all wars, but it really does illustrate the, the, I think that was its whole point, obviously, but it's a fictional story, but it's, you know, kind of wheezed out a lot of these things. Oh, yeah. yeah so the, the book that I've, I've advocated for this, I don't know if any of you others have read it, but it's called The Robe by Lloyd C. Douglas, and it's about 
um, the Roman soldier, the centurion who carries out the crucifixion of Jesus, and then like they cast lots, roll dice or something for the robe, and the guy that wins the robe, um, he is haunted by it because it's a reminder to him of this incredibly atrocious act that he took part in. And the rest of the story kind of unfolds his discovery of the fuller story of Jesus' life. And it's, it's exceptional. It's just fantastic. You get all kinds of, it, it, it does a magnificent job of making the story of the Bible kind of come alive. It's, it's written, there's some scenes in that book that are ex- just absolutely incredible. I make all the fellows read it every summer before they arrive um, because it's, it so captures what, what we want to be true, what we're, what we're trying to be and what, what we want the fellows to be. So I, I love that book. I, I'm glad for the chance to endorse it again. So you guys should read it. Okay. Uh, okay, we're short on time. Okay, I got one more. Well, before I got, I got one more thing. I'll give you guys a chance because I haven't been very flexible here. Other things that you wanted to pull out of this passage? Yeah, Robert. Um, I was thinking about this participating in the sufferings of Christ. You know, he promised there would be persecution. He promised that the world hates me, will hate you. Um, and someone mentioned Jim Elliott. I can't help thinking about his daughter, Valerie who was our pastor's wife some 45 years ago. Oh, wow. Um, she always said, I look forward to persecution. We thought she had a martyr complex of some kind. <laughs> but I think she understood better than those around her what this means participating yeah. in the sufferings of Christ and fulfilling what has been lacking. That is, a lot of persecution that hasn't taken place yet. Yes, that's right. You wanted to participate. Yeah, and that participation is, is going to be to the benefit of others who hear the gospel because we're willing to suffer on their behalf. And it's also going to be beneficial to us because the resurrection is contingent upon crucifixion, you know. And who doesn't, we all want the resurrection. But the way up in, in Christianity, the way up is down. Yeah. And so if she, she has perhaps the wisdom and maybe courage to say that I will trust the way down will actually result in, in, in the up. That's hard. I mean, it's really, I mean, it's easy. I can sit on this stage, talk about it. How hard is that? This is easy, okay? But actually doing it outside, that's a thousand times harder, you know, infinitely, infinitely harder. Nancy? I think you read from the NIV, right, when you read it? Yeah, probably so. I think it's very interesting in the ESV. Sure, let's hear that. It said in the first line, um, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test. Hmm, yeah. Okay, so what, else, what other insight do you see from that? What's that? What other insight does that give you then? Well, the trial, trial is going to test me. It's going to refine me. It's going to yes. equip me. But um, there's a purpose. Yes, that's right. It's not random. And it's not, ju- it's not just that, like, the enemies of God are hurting his people. But God is actually permitting this. And this, there's some value. There's some benefit. There's some upside to this for sure it's excellent okay let me do let's do one okay dan no it's all you just going to tag on to that i mean that's really tapping into the beginning of the book of james where you know we're to count as great joy when we suffer trials of all kinds because it produces in us that's right good things um and so yeah it's it is for our goodness and you know it's it's not just that we're trying to conform to christ it's also that in that process, we become more Christ-like. That's right. And there's a, there's a benefit to it, right? Even though it's a painful benefit, there is some good thing that's coming out of it. 
And what, what Peter's doing, what James is doing, what John is doing, what they're all doing is inviting us to trust that this process that does not look desirable will actually have a desirable outcome. But we have to cooperate in the, mid, in the midst of it. And that's really frightening. Like legitimately frightening. And I don't, make, I don't say that lightly. You know, it's real stuff. Okay, Debbie. You know, and I think a lot of it is when you go through these sufferings, he allows it because then he allows you to see something in yourself that you would not have seen had you had not gone through that, which brings you closer to him. For sure. And that's why I think John, um, Paul says we need to rejoice in our sufferings because he has chosen us because he trusts us that's right. with something because he knows it will bring that out in us. That's right. And that's the whole concept of refining is that he is, he's going to bring us through these difficult things, which you guys know the whole illustration probably like if you're trying to refine gold, you heat it up and all the crud comes to the surface, you can scrape it off and you end up with a purer gold and our lives are the same way. There's just all kinds of selfishness and pettiness and self-righteousness and all whatever. There's all kinds of long list, but it is in the painful parts of our lives that that stuff comes to the surface and it can be dealt with. Although, and you know, you've seen, right, in your own life and the lives of others, like the wealthier and healthier and happier and more everything that you want in our, you are in life, the more selfish you become. The less incentivized you are to actually like repent. Like it's just, it's just true. And I wish it wasn't true because it incentivizes God to bring pain into my life. But it's just true that I'm, ch- I'm changed more by pain than by happiness. And so he's, he's got an incentive to turn up the heat a little bit, right? And sometimes a lot of bit. And we benefit and others benefit. Okay, uh, let me just say this briefly. And then I'm not going to satisfy it, so then you can go to bed and worry about this. So what does this mean? Verse 17. For it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. That's weird, because I thought that we were like big fans of Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? So what, what does that mean? And if it begins with us, then what will, become, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? He's saying there's something here. Something painful will happen for believers and something painful will happen for unbelievers. We've got to think about both of these things. And if you think, that, if you think your part of the story is going to be difficult, oh, hold on. Just how rough do you think it's going to be for those outside of his grace? That's essentially what he's saying. He's like, and so he might get tangled up. He's like, whoa, wait, wait, time out. Judgment for me? What? What is that about? But don't, don't lose sight of the fact. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, there's something we have to lean into. Okay, but if all that does produce in you a sense of fear and pity for yourself, he's like, well, hang on a second, look up, because is it producing anything? Are you conscious of the, what, how dreadful, how absolutely dreadful it is to not have an advocate who speaks to the Father in your defense? And I think when he's saying all this, he's, if he's not literally thinking of Malachi 3, he's, he's drawing the themes of Malachi 3. And I don't have the time to unpack it, but I'll leave it to you guys if you want to go back and do this. Here's Malachi 3. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. This is John the Baptist, by the way. Suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. That would be Jesus. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And listen to this. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire. Debbie, right? A refiner's fire. It's not to destroy, but to, but to refine. And he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. And then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings and righteousness and offerings of Jew to Jerusalem. They'll be acceptable to the Lord. 
This is the way revival always works, you guys. It always starts at the church. Before God does some great work to draw unbelievers into the kingdom, he always begins at home. And let's clean up our act. He does something here to refine us. And it is actually probably the result of a church that is made alive because he is stirring up our sin, bringing us to repentance that we might change him. It's when that happens, then we actually finally kind of kick it into gear and begin to do the work to draw those that are outside the kingdom into his. It is the fire of refining that compels us to rescue people from the fire that destroys. That's, how it, that's actually how it works out. And Peter is saying here, he's really, he's again quoting probably Proverbs 11, where it says, if the righteous receive their due on earth, how much more the ungodly and the sinner? And what we should do is we should take the suffering and pain in our lives and allow it to provoke in us an imagination of what it might be like to be apart from his grace. Our own experience of pain should awaken us to the pain that awaits those that don't know his grace, that have never come under the shadow of his protection, that we might faithfully and painfully, if necessary, our pain, if necessary, be witnesses to his grace so that they will be spared a judgment 10,000 times worse than anything we would ever face. I think that's what Peter is, is calling us to consider there. In very short form, we've got to stop. So that's it. We'll be in chapter 5 next week if you want to read ahead. Thanks.